Everything is lost in the singularity of thought. I just never knew where I was most of the time. I mean, I'm not building a monument to Michael Nesmith with my life. Yeah, well, that could have been your face. Where's That Sound Coming From podcast presents Questions But No Answers, preserving the musical legacy of Michael Nesmith. This is episode two, Propinquity. <laughs> it was all just, you know, about me. Hello, and welcome to episode two of Questions But No Answers. I'm your host, Brian Marchese. Now, I did say that these episodes would generally be about a half an hour long, but I'm already going to break that promise with this episode, because for this song, there's a lot to say and a lot to play. So let's waste no more time. We'll let the song's author do some succinct explaining first, before I do my usual over-explaining. Propinquity is a word which means nearness. This is a song called Propinquity, and it is about falling in love with someone simply because you are near to it. Kind of like falling in love with your car that you've had for seven years. Falling in love with an old sofa, or something. This happened to be about a girl. I just sang was a song called Propinquity. This was uh, uh, an element of perversity that I picked up uh, in my 20s when the publisher that I was working with told me I had to title songs that uh, people could recognize by the name. Well, perfectly clear. I did it just to Anyway, most of the songs I'll be playing tonight I, don't, don't have names that sound. I mean, you're not going to hear the name inside the song, but you'll figure that out. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, perverse indeed. So those were two bits of stage banter regarding the song Propinquity. The first coming from Nez's concert at Drury Lane in London, recorded on November 30th, 1975. And the Markedly higher fidelity one is from the Live at the Brit album, recorded at the Brit Festival in Jacksonville, Oregon, on June 19, 1992. So the first time I heard the song Propinquity by Michael Nesmith, I was 16 years old. It was the fall of 1989, and it sounded like this.
This version comes off of the 1977 album Live at the Palais, released on Nez's multimedia label Pacific Arts. And it started me down a pre-internet road of dodgy first impressions and misperceptions regarding the post-Monkeys solo career of Michael Nesmith. This was indeed my first ever taste of post-Monkeys Nez, and thus, not only did I assume that all his solo stuff must be FM-friendly country rock, but I also assumed that he must have spent the 70s regularly playing in this type of style to packed theaters. Perhaps, I thought, he was like a Richard Thompson or a Bruce Coburn or a Jackson Brown. Artists who play mellow rock music for a reliable fan base of sophisticated adults. I also had never come across the word propinquity before, and if I had, I'd never bothered to look it up. I read it as propinquity, and assumed that he had titled the song after the name of a city or town the way country artists do. Glenn Campbell had Galveston, and so Nez can have his propinquity, right? I mean, if there's cities called Schenectady and Allegheny, there must be a propinquity, right? Wrong and wrong. So wrong. On a couple of podcast interviews, I've heard Nez tell a story about his friend Billy Bob Thornton, whose band The Boxmasters covered the song, and how Billy Bob pronounced it propinquity. And that made me feel not quite as illiterate. So as Nez told the Drury Lane audience, Propinquity is a word that is defined in the Oxford Dictionary as the state of being close to someone or something, or proximity. In psychology circles, propinquity is listed as one of the main factors that leads to interpersonal attraction. Ironically, throughout his career, Nez often played the part of the willful outsider, which some have called self-sabotage, though I think it was in part a defense mechanism to keep people guessing, to keep people at arm's length, control his own narrative, etc. I can't recall the full context, but I read an article in Shindig magazine a few years ago in which Howard Kalin from The Turtles, Flo and Eddie, and lots of other things, referred to something like the impenetrable Nesmith Fortress when asked about the various characters in the social and art scene of 60s Laurel Canyon. Titling a simple country folk pop song with a word that lots of people can't readily define, let alone pronounce correctly, can be seen as illustrative of Kalin's comment. But to the average groover, it can be simply seen as somewhere between perverse and pretentious. In his memoir Infinite Tuesday, Nez repeatedly drives home the point that he was just not the most likable person in the 60s and 70s. And we might have just found a clue regarding this. But let's move on. Back to my first impression of this song. So in the fall of 1989, I started 11th grade at North Andover High. And a couple weeks into the school year, I became one of the first among my classmates to have a driver's license. The summer that had just passed had seen me attend concerts by The Who, The Grateful Dead, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, The Jefferson Airplane, and The Monkees. I'd also had my first two LSD experiences. The concerts and The Acid were both thanks to my older sister, and they all changed my life to some degree. I'll talk more about this when we get to 1968, but one of those acid trips was at the very underwhelming and underattended Monkeys show at Great Woods near the end of summer 89. On the way home from the concert, I went on a long, revelatory acid rant to my sister about how, if the Monkeys rule, but if that show sucked, it must be all because Nesmith wasn't there. It was then that his coolness and his importance was cemented in my head. But there was still so much I didn't know about him. This is another concept that will unfold with this podcast. 
as I still feel like I'm learning about the guy. So that fall, one of my first solo drives that wasn't to and from school was to Newburyport. There was a very good used record store down a set of uneven stone stairs hidden away from the more touristy shops. I can't remember what it was called. On this trip, I decided that I wanted to begin educating myself about Mike Nesmith's solo career. So I went to the end section, and the only Nesmith album they had was Live at the Palais, which started me down the path that I'm still on now. So let's leave that setting for now and start at the beginning of this song's existence. Remember the misguided, grueling, and soul-destroying tour of Texas schools that Mike and John were sent on at the end of 1964? In Infinite Tuesday, Nez relates how he returned to L.A. after that tour completely broken, wrung out, and disenchanted. He knew he wanted music to be his destination, but he also knew that there were different paths to get there, and that he and John were just sent on one of the wrongest paths imaginable. So back in L.A., without any real plan or prospects, Mike picked up his guitar, and whether it was in the same day or the same week, either way, in a concentrated and quantum creative leap, he wrote three or four, depending on the source, songs that would kickstart his career as a songwriter as well as stay in his repertoire until the very end. Nine Times Blue, Papa Jean's Blues, and this song, Perpinquity. He says in Infinite Tuesday that different drum came out of this creative spasm as well, but Andrew Sandoval has him playing that song as early as December 1963, so we'll not think too hard about it and just say, wow. So armed with his new songs, and at a loss of what to do, Mike unveiled these obviously excellent new songs to the Hoot Night audience at the Troubadour in North Hollywood. A stellar mini-set that I and hundreds more lucky fans watched him recreate on the Troubadour stage in January 2018. In any case, these songs earned Mike great applause, respect from the other songwriting upstarts in the house, and a publishing deal with folk music mogul Randy Sparks. Sparks gave Mike $600 to start, and his assistant, Barry Friedman, later known as the Reverend Fraser Mohawk, offered two bits of advice which Mike handled in his own unique ways. One was to change his last name. Mike chose Blessing out of the phone book, which lasted less than a year, but would forevermore be part of his legacy. Tell us what your name is. My name is Michael Blessing. <clears throat> the next was to give his songs memorable titles. Now, this was when a couple of telltale traits first began to show for better or worse. Some might call it contrarianism, or individualism, or plain old self-sabotage. Loath to be known as any sort of pop singer, and desperate to be taken seriously, Blessing took his three new wonderful and accessible songs and titled them each with words that never appear in the songs. And so we get Propinquity, Papa Jean's Blues, and later Hollywood, Nine Times Blue, Carlisle Wheeling, Tapioca Tundra, Writing Wrongs, Auntie's Municipal Court, Good Clean Fun, etc. All Nez tunes in which the title never appears in the song's lyrics. Now it's interesting to consider that despite having just struck songwriting gold, Mike still concurrently followed other paths that would not reflect his strengths or his future. One, Mike and John and Bill, whose story we covered in the last episode, and two, doing these crassly, quote-unquote, hip novelty tunes with a five-minute shelf life, like The New Recruit and What Seems to Be the Trouble Officer. The latter two might have been an attempt by his then-manager Bob Krasnow, who also wrote these tunes, to present Michael Blessing as a hip rebel, which in his own way, of course, he was, 
but neither of these songs were even remotely accurate reflections of who he was, or what kind of rebel he was. In fact, in both songs, Mike is playing characters that in retrospect are embarrassing to hear. When the Infinite Tuesday soundtrack came out, I griped a whole bunch that How Can You Kiss Me and Not The New Recruit should have been track one. It's also interesting to think about how around this time when Mike auditioned for The Monkees, Bert Schneider and Bob Rafelson could have seen him as a novelty act and, assuming he still got the part, based his character around these false personas. Thankfully, they saw and heard the real personality and that it was far more interesting, cool, sustainable, and unique than what Krasnow was pushing and had him ditch the name Blessing and the novelty tunes. Yes, he was now going to be controlled by a new machine, but at least he could more or less be himself. Propinquity is a very well-written song. It's got everything going for it. Great rhymes, great economical refrain, universal lyrics, a great theme, great bridge, great melody. But of course he had to title it Propinquity, a word that the majority of the population does not know how to pronounce or define as I didn't at the age of 16. What was up with all that? I think part of it was a defense mechanism for not having much formal education and being from Texas and being surrounded by well-educated LA kids from highly literate backgrounds. So what better way to come across as smart than to title your songs with big words? In Infinite Tuesday, Nez mentioned how he was an unmotivated student and not a big reader, nor intellectual in any way in his teens and early 20s, and got a lot of his knowledge secondhand from Phyllis, who was much more intellectually curious and literate. Phyllis even knew about Bob Dylan before her folk-singing boyfriend did. So enough of my yammering, and let's hear Mike's, or rather Mike and John's, since you'll hear a bass in there, demo for Propinquity. Oddly, this is just about the only officially released Monkees-related recording that Andrew Sandoval doesn't have any details about in either of his books or in the liner notes of reissues. But let's assume that this first version was recorded just at the start of the Monkees, perhaps as a demo for the show's producers. They of course passed on this song, not surprisingly, since, as I've said twice before, it's fair to say that the word propinquity was not in the vocabulary of the average 10 to 14 year old. Plus the mature lyrics, which describe feelings that develop over time in a long-term relationship, which is a far cry from, say, The Day We Fall In Love, or Tomorrow's Gonna Be Another Day, from the first Monkeys album. But then again, I Wanna Be Free and Take a Giant Step Outside Your Mind are pretty grown up too, so who knows? Maybe it was the Texas accent after all. So in this recording, we hear how Mike's picking has evolved in the last year. There's a podcast interview that I'm trying to track down from maybe five years ago, where Nez talks about when and where he learned this rolling picking technique, which he obviously mastered quickly and impressively. The 12-string acoustic is really Nez's sound, as we'll see again and again. So this is most likely what he sounded like on that troubadour stage just before getting the monkeys gig. Imagine him playing this brand new song while folks like Neil Young and Tim Buckley and Gene Clark were listening from their bar stools. So here is the first version of Propinquity, as recorded by Mike Nesmith and John London, a song that would never leave Nesmith's repertoire for the rest of his career. I've known for a long time the kind of girl you are. 
All the smile that covers teardrops The way your head yields to your heart All things you've kept inside That most girls couldn't bear I've known you for a long time But I've just begun to care Yes, I've known of all your heartache I've known of all the pain I've seen you when the sun shines And I've seen you when it rains I've seen you make a look of love From just an icy stare I've known you for a long time But I've just begun to care I know I've been blind To not have loved you all this time But the image of you Clear. I guess I've been standing too near Oh, it's taken me a while But I have finally found What you are to me And that's what really counts What you are to me Is something we can share Cause I've known you all along But I've just begun to care I know I've been blind To not have loved you all this time But the image of you wasn't clear I guess I've been standing too near Oh, it's taken me a while But I have finally found What you are to me And that's what really counts And what you are to me Is something we can share I've known you for a long time But I've just begun to care Yes, I've known you for a long time But I've just begun Anyone with the ears and a beating heart can tell that this song is an instant classic, penned by a gifted new songwriter on the L.A. scene. Had Mike been a free agent at this time, who knows what road he would have gone down. However, as the man himself sang... You can't try and walk down two different roads Look to both of them to bring you home and as I said before, I've known you for a long time, but I've just begun to care is quite a mature sentiment, even for a guy in his early 20s like Mike was. So obviously, Don Kirshner and co. passed, and Propinquity started on a long and eventful journey. Next stop, Nashville. So now it's the spring of 1968, and life could not be more different. We all know the trajectory of the Monkees' story, and 1968 was perhaps the most fascinating in their story. All one has to do is listen to the amazing, super deluxe edition of The Birds, Bees, and Monkeys, another Andrew Sandoval reissue masterpiece, to see that all four monkeys had gone from trying to be a real band and having two great records and an impressive summer tour in 1967, to developing and running with their own individual and very different styles in 1968. After having taken an all-too-short detour into his own brand of psychedelic rock at the end of 1967 into the start of 68, with songs like Tapioca Tundra and Circle Sky. Nez returned to his country leanings, but now he had the means to get real Nashville cats to record with him. 
Yes, he punched a wall and threatened Don Kirshner a year earlier in the name of getting the monkeys to record as a real band. But having done that, they were now seemingly the last people he wanted to get musically involved with. It's almost like dating a co-worker because you seem to get along in the office, but once out in the real world, you find that there's not much that you have in common to make a true relationship work. Hey, you know what that might be classified as? The aforementioned propinquity effect in social psychology. Anyway, in late spring of 68, specifically between May 28th and June 2nd, Nez flew down to Nashville to record a small stack of his strongest songs, both new and old, plus one unlikely but inspired choice of cover tune, at RCA Studios with some of the most significant Nashville studio cats like Lloyd Green, Kenny Buttry, Norbert Putnam, and Wayne Moss. It was a productive and apparently super fun five days, with only banjo player Sonny Osborne later describing the sessions as, quote, idiotic. However, it might be significant to note that while many of those cats who played on Neza's session soon formed the band Area Code 615, which blended Nashville expertise with serious party vibes, and Nez does describe lots of weed being smoked during these sessions, Sonny Osborne and his spoil sport attitude was not among them. However, he is the banjo player on the Nashville version of Propinquity, which was incidentally the first song recorded at the sessions on May 28, 1968. I've known for a long time The kind of girl you are Of a smile that covers teardrops The way your head yields to your heart But things you've kept inside That most girls couldn't bear I've known you for a long time But I've just begun to care I've known Cause I've seen you when the sun shines And I've seen you when it rains I've seen you make a look of love From just an icy stare I've known you for a long time But I've just begun to care That I've been standing too near Oh, it's taken me a while But I have finally found What you are A few notable differences. First off, tonsils. Nez got them removed in the spring of 67, and comparing the last two versions is a good way to hear the difference in his voice. Post-tonsillectomy, Nez's voice sounds more open and kind of more friendly. And musically, the song has gone from straight folk to a lazy country swing. It's also gone from the key of G to the key of A. So now Nez has tracked two perfectly fine versions of Propinquity, but he will leave the monkeys a year later without either version seeing the light of day. And in fact, the first time the world would hear Propinquity would be on a nitty-gritty Dirt Band album which was released in 1970, 
but we'll discuss cover versions later. Now here's a brief interlude to play bits of two different songs that came out of the LA scene of the early to mid-70s that, to my ears, owe a little something to Propinquity, whether the authors realize it or admit it or not. Tell me what you think. The woman I'm thinking of, she loved me all up, but I'm so So that was, of course, Out on the Weekend by Neil Young from his 1972 album Harvest and Lion Eyes, uh, written by Glenn Fry and Don Henley for the Eagles' 1975 album One of These Nights, which is the only Eagles album I own. Yeah, I don't know. They both uh, do a similar thing with the uh, with the melody uh, moving over the chord changes. Um, maybe it was just what was in the air, or maybe those guys were secretly listening to Nez, or maybe not so secretly listening. Who knows? I once again remind you that the name of this podcast is Questions, but no answers. Nez finally released his own version on 1971's Nevada Fighter, the third of the three albums released within a 16-month period by the First National Band. The FNB broke up during the making of this album, but were still intact when this song was tracked on August 13, 1970. Let's see how it's changed. I've known for a long time the kind of girl you are of a smile that covers teardrops The way your head yields to your heart Of things you've kept inside That most girls couldn't bear I've known you for a long time But I've just begun to care I've known of all the heartache And I've known of all the pain I've seen you when the sun shines And I've seen you when it rains I've seen you make a look of love from just an icy stare I've known you for a long time, but I've just begun to care I know I've been blind To not have loved you all this time But the image of you wasn't I've been standing to near Oh, it's taken me a while But I have finally found What you are to me And that's what really counts And what you are to me Is something we can share I've known you for a long time 
Okay, so musically, a lot has changed, and this arrangement is not one that Nez would return to in subsequent live performances that I've heard, although OG FNB live recordings continue to be elusive, if they exist at all, but hope springs eternal. For a short while, there was a clip on YouTube of Nez in 1971 doing a solo acoustic propinquity, and I'm so bummed that it's gone. Please email me at where's that sound coming from at gmail.com if you happen to know where it might still exist. In any case, the key has moved up yet again. Now we've gone up another half step to A sharp, or if you prefer, B flat. The lovely guitar intro would stay, more or less, in subsequent versions, but the rest is unique to this studio version. Percussion-wise, there's a shaker, which is joined by light brush strokes on the snare, which evolve into a 16th note pattern played only on a muted snare drum by John Ware, perhaps with a towel atop the snare, a la Ringo Starr on the last few Beatles albums. Perhaps he's also using mallets. Perhaps I could ask John Ware. The 16th notes intensify and recede as needed, like waves crashing on a shore. There are also dramatic piano chords played only on the low registers. I should mention that playing that shaker is a guy named James Zetro, formerly Jimmy Messenger, and on piano is a guy named Michael Cohen. Their connection to the Nezverse is fascinating to a geek like me, and we should all thank Andrew Sandoval once again for his researching and publishing these details in the Monkey's Day by Day book. I hope I get this somewhat right. Get ready. So, going back to 1965, Bill Chadwick was Mike and John's friend from the LA folk scene and bandmate in The Survivors. And of course, later, Chadwick played a huge part in the Monkees story. In the summer of 65, when Mike and John were sent to promote How Can You Kiss Me in San Antonio, the talented Bill Chadwick came along to fill out the sound. Drummer Bill Sleeper had been drafted for Vietnam, so they had Jimmy Messenger on drums for a couple gigs. Messenger would change his name to Jimmy Zetro and record a free jazz album in 1967 called Zetro, which would come out on the ESP disc label. If you're curious, and I was, you can listen to and download this album on Bandcamp. It consists of three lengthy, structure-free, melody-free tracks. Quite noisy, as free jazz tends to be. This is music that small record shop owners will play loudly in order to curate their clientele that 3AM DJs will play while they get high in the alley behind the station. Michael Cohen was a friend of Bill Chadwick's and did music transcription for Chadwick's original compositions. Cohen and Nesmith would become friends and would write a song together called 13 is Not Our Lucky Number in 1965, which Mike would record multiple times between 1965 and 1970, but only a 1969 version with no vocals has seen the light of day, in this case on the Monkees Present box set. In July of 66, Nesmith would hire Cohen to play keyboard alongside Wrecking Crew member Larry Nectel on a session that would yield the Monkees' favorite and Nesmith composition, Mary Mary, as well as Chadwick's folk rocker, Of You, and the mystical I Prithee, written by another of Nesmith's Texas pals, future country superstar Michael Martin Murphy, who credits Nesmith for getting his career started. And of course, that's uh, Michael Martin Murphy, 
who co-wrote What Am I Doing Hanging Round for the Monkees. And back to Michael Cohen for a second. He was hired by Nez in 1972 to be part of the second national band. So that's his crazy whacked out keyboards all over Tantamount to Treason. And he's also on uh, The Prison, which has some great whacked out piano as well. So many names. Such a tangled web. And here I was just talking about the damn percussion and piano on the Nevada Fighter version of Propinquity. Anyway, the last element of this version that I want to point out is the lovely interlude that happens twice in the song, where the electric guitar, played by Nez, plays little figures that wrap themselves beautifully around Red Road's cascading pedal steel. Whew, I hope that detour wasn't too much. Anyway, let's move on to a live version recorded November 10th, 1977 at the Palais Theatre in Melbourne, Australia, and released on the album that I mentioned at the top of this episode, My First Taste of Solo Nez, Live at the Palais. We already heard the intro, so we'll take it from the second verse and hear the two solos and the second bridge.
you read Nez's notes on the back of the Live at the Palais LP jacket, I'm not sure if they were reproduced on the CD release, he begins by singing the praises of the inherent imperfections of live shows. And remember, this is the late 70s. And the fanatics who seek out multiple performances by certain famous bands because they love to listen for the differences between performances. Parenthetical interlude. Um, is he talking about deadheads? Stop looking at me! But now that I've been outed, I will say that I've heard the tape from four nights later on this tour, and Al Perkins' solo on Grand Ennui is face-melting. Back to the liner notes. So after his introductory paragraph, in which he sings the praises of live performances inherent in perfection, Nez then, and this is so honest of him, outlines three small corrections that he made to the live recording back home at his studio. I say so honest because a huge amount of famous live albums have corrections and overdubs and edits and fake crowd noise, but the artists dare not tear down the fourth wall. Anyway, one of the aforementioned corrections was to his guitar in the intro of Propinquity, the one that's kind of jangling, arpeggiating, which he says had a flat string at the show. That's fair enough, and the re-recording sounds good, but this is just me, the musician and studio guy talking. He made no attempt at matching the tones. In the intro, it's this sparkly, clean, lovely tone, and then it's this somewhat dirtier tone sitting somewhere different in the mix, especially noticeable in the outro, which is the same as the intro, and which he might have wanted to also re-record just for continuity. Sorry. Backseat producer over here. I do love this version. What I just mentioned doesn't detract from my enjoyment of it at all. But this is a completely reworked, never-before-never-again arrangement that feels kind of like they wanted to take it squarely into mainstream late 70s LA rock. And it works. There's also a Dylan vibe to it, especially the organ solo and Nez's inflection at the end of the second bridge. The song was written by Mike Nesmith, who's perhaps best known as being one of the monkeys, but he was also a good songwriter. Speaking of the organ solo, let me introduce the great fucking band that he put together for this short tour of Australia, which was in fact to promote Rio, which was a hit in Australia, uh, and which oddly does not appear on Live at the Palais. On drums is John Ware who hadn't played with Nez since quitting the first national band in late 1970 during the Nevada Fighter Sessions. Between then and the Australian tour of 77, Ware had most notably been part of Emmylou Harris's Hot Band, which is a much more successful gig than first national band. But Ware is a man of good taste, and despite tensions and differences, he never stopped speaking highly of the first national band albums and Nez's creative talents. So he was happy to be part of this tour, Also in the band, James Trumbo on piano and organ, and he plays some nice stuff. If you've ever heard a complete concert from this tour, like a bootleg, which someone played me once, Trumbo would get a five-minute solo, like as in everybody else leaves the stage. It bridges Tomorrow and Me, which isn't on the Palais album, and some of Shelley's Blues. James Trumbo is best known for being Van Morrison's keyboard player during the Veden Fleece era, which was three years prior to this. On guitar is none other than Al Perkins. Ooh boy. He's on Exile on Main Street by the Stones. He was part of Stephen Stills' Manassas. He was in the second lineup of the Flying Burrito Brothers. 
He played on albums by Leonard Cohen, Bob Dylan, Rita Coolidge, Randy Newman, Graham Parsons, The Eagles, Emmylou Harris, and he was Nez's main guitar guy from this tour through the recording of Infinite Rider on the Big Dogma, on which he seriously rips. He also rips all over Live at the Palais, but he mostly brings his grade-A country rock game, B-Bender and all. He also plays pedal steel. On bass is the guy who I might say defines the sound of late 70s Nez as much as Red Roads defined early 70s Nez, and that's bassist David McKay. On this tune, the bass doesn't stand out, but I'll be sure to point out when it does. McKay was playing in a Bay Area reggae band called the Tasmanian Devils when Nez spotted him and asked him to be his bassist. Thinking back on how a decade earlier that's how he recruited Chip Douglas, who was playing in the Turtles, one must wonder whether Michael Nesmith thought of nightclubs as a sort of shopping mall for one's personal musical needs. <laughs> this last version will bring it full circle. We started with Nez and his 12-string acoustic in 1966, and that's how we'll end this part of the episode, when Nez returned to the Troubadour in North Hollywood, California, with an all-new version of the First National Band on January 25th, 2018. I was at this show, and while the band was undeniably amazing, the mini-acoustic set was the highlight for me. Solo acoustic Nez is always soul-enriching, and seeing it live, there was just this aura around him that confirmed my suspicions that he was and is a one-of-a-kind individual.
what you are to me is something we can share. I've known you for a long time, but I've just begun to care. Yes, I've known you for a long time, but I've just begun to care. Hey, I was in that audience. Can you hear me? I actually, after the fact, I think probably on my way home, thought, why didn't I yell out, wax my newt? Mm. Anyway, Without going into too much detail in the interest of time, and since this isn't the old Where's That Sound Coming From podcast in which I'd analyze multiple cover versions of songs, Perpinquity is one of the most oft-covered Michael Nesmith compositions. And here's a medley of them. First off, the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band from 1970s LP Uncle Charlie and His Dog Teddy on Liberty Records, produced by William McEwen. This album starts with another Nez tune, some of Shelley's blues, and also includes songs by Randy Newman, Jerry Jeff Walker, and Kenny Loggins. I've known for a long time the kind of girl you are And the smiles that covered teardrops the way your head yields to your heart Of things you've kept inside that most girls couldn't bear well, I've known you for a long time, but I've just begun to care. The Earl Scruggs Review from 1972's LP, I Saw the Light with a Little Hope for My Friends, on Columbia Records, produced by Don Law. This album also features a cover of Summer's Shelley's Blues 2, as well as songs by Delaney and Bonnie, Johnny Cash, and Merle Haggard. Earl Scruggs' grandson, Chris Scruggs, played lead and pedal steel guitar on Nez's Movies of the Mind tour in 2013. Ian Matthews from 1973's Valley High, produced by Michael Nesmith for Electra Records, featuring Michael Nesmith and his countryside ranch band. This album also featured songs by fellow songwriting heavyweights Jackson Brown, Richard Thompson, and Randy Newman. Oh, I know I've been blind To not have loved you all this time but the image of you wasn't clear Well, I guess I've been standing too near It's taken me a while now, but I find the UK pub rock band Starry-Eyed and Laughing on a posthumous compilation called Forever Young. You might recognize the name Starry-Eyed and Laughing from their being on the bill at the famous Zigzag concert that Nez headlined at the Roundhouse in London, April 1974. Yeah, but I have found what you are to me, and that's what really 
Salute, who are the best Nez cover band in New England, led by the one and only Mick Lawless. I've known of all the heartache, I've known of all the pain, seen you in the sunshine, and I've seen you when it rains. I've seen you make a look of love from just an icy stare. I've known you for a long time, but I've just begun to care And finally, Mickey Dolans from 2021's Dolan Sings Nesmith, produced by Michael's eldest child, Christian Nesmith, on 7A Records. track. There was a short-lived hippie folk band from Colorado in the early 70s called Propinquity. Did they name themselves after the song? I'm gonna say definitely, possibly, maybe. Here's a song they did called And I, A Fairy Tale Lady. credits to a song called Propinquity by legendary film and television music writer Stu Phillips. 
He wrote some incidental music for the Monkees series and many, many more TV shows and movies spanning a few decades. But his propinquity has nothing to do with this episode's featured song. And so that's all from here. Get in touch if you have any questions, comments, suggestions as to how I can take this to the next level. I do all this shit myself. Researching, writing, recording, producing. So please be gentle with criticism. Again, that email address is where's that sound coming from at gmail.com. That's where's that sound coming from, all one word, no apostrophe, at gmail.com. Plus, I have a Facebook page, and uh, I think it's just uh, the Where's That Sound Coming From Facebook page. And uh, so please like that, and follow it, and do whatever else you do with things on Facebook. And I should probably have more of a social media presence. I will. I'll try. Okay, so next episode will be a song that I can't believe was never released on an album, let alone a single. And it'll be a much simpler story and episode. Happy 2024 to y'all, if I forgot to say that last time. Be well. <laughs>